All right, friends, welcome back, and thank you for tuning in to today's episode entitled Anatomy of the State. I'm sitting behind the microphone today because I had recently read a short story, a little under 60 pages, that really inspired me and moved me. I thought the messages in it were nothing short of amazing, very powerful, very horrifying in a lot of ways. And a lot of it talked about concepts that we knew about, but gave you the words that you never had for it. It provided a much deeper understanding. So the title of the book was called Anatomy of the State by a man named Murray and Rothbard. And I could not recommend this book enough for anyone who wants to understand the system of government any better than they already do. Now, a lot of these things, I want to say this first, what's powerful about this book is it was written in 1973, but although it was back then, the things he says, he lays out the equation for the machine of government, how this ruling system works, not the people, but the machine on its own. And although it was written all the way, all those years ago, it could not be more relevant now. In fact, the equation becomes even more clear as you read what he wrote back then and compares it to what happens now. It's haunting to realize that over 50 years later, the equation is still the same. Now, what this book does, and it does a fucking great job at it, is breaking down this giant cloud of government. Now, like I said, it's not specific as in people. Or anything like that, it is the word government, what that means, what it is, how it hovers over us, where it gets its power, and how humans have used it to rule over one another since the beginning of us. There was so many inspirational things in that book that really caused you to take a step back, go, holy shit, this is our system. And then, but not only realize that, but then re-engage and go back in and look into why and reread those pages over and over again until you have an understanding. So when you compare it to the things that are going on today, there's no, there's no gap between what he said back then to what is relevant now. It's all the same in between. So I do want to start off by reading. I have a couple excerpts excerpts picked out from this book that I want to read. One is from chapter three, and then the one is from, I want to say, chapter seven. So let me just get into that real quick, and then we'll go from there. Okay, so this excerpt's from chapter three entitled, How the State Preserves Itself. And this chapter basically covers how you take the word government. One cloud that hovers over all of us. Well, where does this cloud get its power from? What resources does it need to continue to rule over us, but it needs support? Government isn't just one person or one thing. It is an entire system that is put together and implemented over an entire group or countries of people. So when it talks about how the government preserves itself through size and dominance, The writing goes, one method of securing support is through the creation of vested economic interests. Therefore, the king cannot rule alone. He must have a sizable group of followers who enjoy the prerequisites of rule. For example, the members of state apparatus, such as full-time bureaucracy or the established nobility. But this still secures only a minority of eager supporters. And even the essential purchasing of support by subsidies and other grants of privilege still does not obtain the consent of the majority. For this essential acceptance, 
The majority of must be persuaded by ideology that their government is good, wise, and at least inevitable, and certainly better than other conceivable alternatives. Promoting this ideology among the people is the vital social task of the intellectuals. For the masses of men do not create their own ideas or indeed think through these ideas independently. They follow passively the ideas adopted and disseminated by the body of intellectuals. The intellectuals are, therefore, the opinion molders in society. And since it is precisely a molding of opinion that the state most desperately needs, the basis for age-old alliance between state and the intellectuals becomes clear. It is evident that the state needs the intellectuals. It is not so evident why the intellectuals need the state. Okay, so as I go forward to the next part of that, basically it's talking about how that cloud cannot function on its own. It needs it needs support from the higher up members of society or today's you would consider them the elites. The cloud can function with the help of the elites and the elites can function off the help of the cloud. They go back and forth. Now, when it comes to critiquing the state, I, I really highlighted this section because it shook me to the bone. So moving forward, the greatest danger to the state is independent intellectual criticism. There is no better way to stifle that criticism than to attack any isolated voice, any razor of new doubts, as a profane violator of the wisdom of his ancestors. Another potent ideological force is to deprecate the individual and exalt the collectivity of society. For since any given rule implies majority acceptance, any ideological danger to that rule can only start from one or a few independently thinking individuals. The new idea, much less the new critical idea, must need begin as a small minority opinion. Therefore, the state must nip the view in the bud by ridiculing any view that defies the opinions of the masses. Listen only to your brothers or adjust to society. Thus becomes ideological weapons for crushing individual dissent. By such measures, the masses will never learn of the non-existence of their emperor's clothes. It is also important for the state to make its rule seem inevitable. Even if its reign is disliked, it will then be met with passive resignation as witness the familiar coupling of death and taxes. So what I really like about that chapter, chapter three, when it talks about where the, how the government preserves itself, you know, it really did a nice job talking about how the cloud, the government above us functions by surrounding itself with the elites, the intellectual thinkers, the ones in today's society, they would be the game players, the corporations, the one that set up the, the board that we play on. The ones that implement change, the ones that design the system that we live, the government comes through and makes the rules, but the elites are the ones that help mold us to living the life we want. And, you know, as I'm reading about these intellectuals and the elites, you know, as you read throughout this, it screams the corporations at you. Those are the big players, the ones that leech off the government and vice versa. There's a lot of money to be made between that cloud and those elites. Between that, there's a lot of power to be held. So I, I, what I like about this book moving forward too, so I'm going to move away from that chapter three. Like I said, chapter three was one of my favorites. Really shows how 
this system of governing cannot survive without a set class of people at the top filtering everything and setting all the rules and implementing our way of life for us. And like I said, you know, like I said towards the end of his writing there, it's easy to squish those who would go against that system because there are so many powerful beings at the top that have laid out this board for us. It's not hard to crush the individual who stands up and says, well, what the fuck is going on here? How are these and these working together? All the power, all the corruption, it's at the very top. But you know what? We all know that. It doesn't matter if it's exposed because we are too small as individuals to stand up to that cloud, to stand up to those elites. Like I said, we play on the board that they have made for us. As an individual, it's very difficult, almost impossible to overthrow. No, it is over impossible to overthrow something like that. But the best thing we can do is fill ourselves with the mu- as much knowledge as we can as to how this machine works. Like I said, there's nothing you'll be able to do about it, but it'll at least give you a better understand- uh, understanding as to the evils in this world, why they occur, and where they, where they are bred from. So moving away from that, when he gets a little bit later in the book, I like how he touches on the topics of social powers. Here, let me just go back to my notes real quick. He talks about the difference between social power and state power. And then again, where he talks about economic means versus political means and what those two concepts really mean. And for example, when I talk about economic means, it's in terms of production and exchange between humans between countries if we make something we will sell it to you vice versa and that's how our relationship as humans between one tribe to another would sustain itself by these economic means of production and exchange however political means tends to re re, um fuck tends to mean seizure force and taking Now, we don't have to trade with them because we are big enough to take what they have. We will get this done by political means. If we do not obtain the resources we need, then under some sort of flag, we will use force and coercion and take it. You know, and (laughs) you want to talk about relevancy. You see this a lot today with the reason wars are started. You know, let's take Iraq, for example. They have our oil. And I say our in quotations. They have our oil. We need a reason to get over there. We need a reason to get our weapons on a boat, go across the seas and start fighting to obtain that resources. So what do you do? You do it under a false flag. And you give your country a reason to go to war because you only want that one thing. Now that is political means. You will use war and force to take a resource. And there's a lot of lying in the process. But then, you know, as we move away from that, we go to the difference of social powers and state powers. And this was another interesting one too. Social power is basically everything that we, now if you're looking at a a pyramid in your head, look at the bottom level. That is us at the social power. Everything we do make and create and share at the bottom is us. You know, and the state power would be that thing at the top of the pyramid, that little triangle at the very top. Now, the social power is the things that we do. The state's power is that cloud that hovers above us and siphons from what we do. This would be taxes. This would be 
Yeah, well, I mean, taxes is a really good fucking example, but anything, any resources that we make or that we have, our surplus of production is siphoned by that top layer. You know, the way I, I, I envision this when I talk about social power or state power, state social power, we're on the ground. State power is that little UFO that hovers above us and it just kind of suctions up some of the things we have and it power promises us the power of protection simply over the fact that it hovers over us. But what does it actually do minus suck our resources that we make and produce and create down here on the floor? But you can even apply this other where besides just resources. The government has to siphon through us to obtain what it wants moving forward. So I want to read a little excerpt from that real quick on... This would have been out of chapter seven. History is a race between state power and social power. So here we go. Just as the two basic and mutually exclusive interrelations between men are peaceful cooperation and coercive exploitation, production or predation. So the history of mankind, particularly its economic history, may be considered as a contest between those two principles. On the one hand. There is creative productivity, peaceful exchange, and cooperation. On the other, coercive dictation and predation over those social relations. Albert J. Nock happily termed these contesting forces social power and state power. Social power is man's power over nature, his cooperative transformation of nature's resources and insight into nature's laws for the benefit of all participating individuals. Social power is the power over nature, the living standards achieved by men in mutual exchange. State power, as we have seen, is the coercive and parasitic seizure of his production, a draining of the fruits of society for the benefits of the non-productive rulers. While social power is over nature, state power is power over man. Okay, so moving away from those excerpts, you know, those are just a brief, a very brief window into what this book truly is and the amount of detail it goes into, the depth. Like I said, this was one of the reads. It was a little, it was 60 or something pages, a little under maybe. It was one of them reads where you had to go back and keep rereading the same page, you know, a time or two before you truly got to paint the right picture and understand fully what he was talking about and diving into. Because like I said, these aren't examples that he's giving. He's speaking on very, very broad but deadly accurate principles. He's laying out the equation, the formula for what is government. And he doesn't... Ex- there, you know, it was very interesting when I was reading this. He doesn't specifically say government many times in that book. He know, he refers to it only as the state. So he breaks down the equation of exactly what the state is, how it rules over us, how the state sustains itself, what does it need, and how this state can be applied to every society across the face of the earth throughout human hmm throughout the history of humans. And like I said, 50 years ago it was made, but it couldn't be more relevant than it is today. You know, there is, I think, (laughs) especially with how busy and chaotic the world is now, I think there are more examples in today that would paint a clear picture by reading the words that were written 50 years ago. So I highly, 
highly recommend this book for anyone that's skeptical of our system. If the system bugs you the way it is, if it depresses you or makes you angry about our our way of life and the powers that hover over us, the powers that restrict us, that take away from us, and that do it out of a lot of greed. Does the government and does the state provide good? Yes. But at what cost? What cost and how much evil and destruction and lies are spread in the process and how many lives are ruined or altered by our government and the way our government operates and takes the things that it wants and lies about the things it wants to. It's crazy shit. There's a lot of... uh, a lot of deep diving in each one of these chapters. So like I said, I'd highly recommend it. I have the purchased link. I have the purchase link on Amazon in this episode's description. Like I said, 60 pages, go on there, check it out. It cost me like five, six bucks to buy and it was here within two days. I finished it within one day and I had to go back and reread it again because I was that ecstatic about the things that I was reading. Makes a lot of sense. The guy's an extremely intellectual writer this i'm not gonna lie this is a tough read there's a lot of a lot of times you're going back to reread just to process the words again that he uses there's no other way around that but when you do understand what he's saying it at like i said in the beginning of this episode it puts the words in your mouth to describe the system in a way that you didn't have them before we all know what the system is We all know what the state does and how it impacts us in our daily lives. But when you take a look at this equation, the equation and the formula as to why this state is the way it is, it all makes sense. Everything that happens in our political world has to happen for a reason because the machine demands it that way. The machine will not function unless these fail safes are put into place. If the, if the machine didn't surround itself with the intellectuals and the money that it did to protect itself and to manifest an in, a support of growth and wealth, then it wouldn't function the way it did and we would not function the way we do. So I want to read one last thing. It's the final paragraph that he talks about in this book. It was his closing thought. And, uh, and then I'm going to leave the episode there. So just give me a second here. Okay. In this century, the human race faces, once again, the virulent reign of the state, of the state now armed with the fruits of man's creative powers, confiscated and perverted to its own aims. The last few centuries were times when men tried to place constitutional and other limits on the state, only to find that such limits, with all other attempts, have failed. Of all the numerous forms that government has taken over the centuries, of all the concepts and institutions that have been tried, none have been successful in keeping the state in check. The problem of the state is inevitably as far from the solution as ever. Perhaps new paths of inquiry must be explored if the successful, final solution of the state question is ever to be attained. And that's the end of the reading. Like I said, I could not recommend this book enough. I have the purchase link in this episode's description. One more time, Anatomy of the State, Murray N. Rothbard. Educate yourself, friends. Educate yourself 100%. Understand this system that controls every aspect of your life. (laughs) I'm Drew Raven. I want to thank you for listening, and hey, you have a good day.